Welcome to the Werewolf Den, where we do a deep dive into the core concepts and principles behind White Wolf's Werewolf the Apocalypse. I'm Amelin. And I am Ryan. Welcome back. So today, we are going to talk about what is an optional rule in Werewolf the Apocalypse, but strangely enough is also right at the top of your character sheet, as if it's not... (laughs) We're going to talk about camps today. (laughs) So, basically, long short of it, camps, good idea, terribly executed, that needs a lot of revision. Mm -hmm. So we like to look at camps from either three different perspectives. First perspective is that camps narrow in with a laser sharp focus on one microcosm of a tribe's outlook. Bonars are a very good example of this. A lot of their camps are things like the Swarm or the Frankenweilers, where the Swarm is all about duplicitous fighters and, you know, terrorist attacks, blowing up Pentex buildings, you know, being dishonorable fighters when fighting the worm. Whereas the Frankenweilers are about preserving and maintaining public spaces, libraries, homeless shelters, any place that's available to the common citizen. Second one is the geographical approach, which these first two have already been done by White Wolf. Part of the problem is they didn't choose which one, but the geographical approach is tribes exist everywhere now, but different cultures have different means of interpreting and time has a way of changing various philosophies and honing in on how those changes occur. So... What does feminism look like in rural China versus what feminism looks like in highly urban Rio? What does it look like in Appalachia as opposed to Japan? The third is what we call the best solution. So we'll save that one for last. Sure. And we'll talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the first two, since White Wolf has already graciously done both these approaches. <laughs> so to start with the like microcosm camps, these I think are the better of the two, but they still kind of bug me a little bit. When you consider your tribe as something that is kind of like your personal religion, it's something that this totem embodies these different aspects and elements and behaviors, and you've ascribed to most, if not all of them. Joining a camp kind of feels isolating in that regard. And a lot of the camps just sort of feel like, well, that's the tribe. A good example are the Bane Tenders with Older Brother, Mm -hmm. where this is the tribe that deals with spirits that are too great to be killed and finds ways to subvert the worm in that regard. Cool stuff. But it doesn't matter what older brother I choose to play. I still kind of want that to be a part of it. Because that's a very, very important aspect of the tribe at whole. If I'm playing a Bonar, the Bonar I'm playing in Amelon's game has aspects of all of these different camps. He's very swarmy. He's very, very swarmy. <laughs> He's not that one-dimensional. And that's the problem I have with the camps, is they kind of feel one-dimensional. Because they're not really interacting with one another. They're just sort of embodying this one aspect of the totem. And that's cool, but what's the point? The strong point I can see with this is that 
it helps break up the standard stereotype. If you only have one stereotype in mind for how your character should act, perhaps, per se, you only see the Bonars very frequently as Frankenweiler types whenever you imagine them. Seeing these other camps allows you to break up and expand out on the philosophy a little bit. If you're not very heavily read on anarchism or anti-materialism for the case of the Bonars or anything like that, it's a good way to explore those topics without a lot of academic or educational background. The other good point with approaching it philosophically is you can start approaching it through the villain aspect now. One of the big things that we haven't really touched on but definitely have hinted at with this game is that werewolves very much perceive themselves to be a good guys and have a very good cause, but there's reasons they're failing, and that's because not all of them are by default good people. The key, 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 key camps that I like to focus in on that truly embody how cool this dynamic is come from the Geta Fenris, which has my favorite camp, the Hands of Tear. Absolutely adore the Hands of Tear. But also have what I will never allow players to play, but will absolutely introduce as an antagonist should it fit my story, which are the Swords of Heimdall, which are the Nazi faction of the Geta Fenris, basically. And this dynamic, the fact that these two can both simultaneously exist, where one actively tries to kill the other, creates this huge wave of conflict within the tribes itself, and creates this expanding idea as to the fact that the tribe philosophy can change and is frequently in conflict with itself uh, in a lot of ways. And this can happen with all the other tribes. So camps, exploring them philosophically, allows you to explore that villain aspect, as well as expanding your mind out away from that one idea that you have that you automatically gravitate to. That's the strength of the philosophical angle. I like the idea of the camps being sort of like training wheels for people who haven't thought for months and months and months on this as a, a good way to give like a practical example of how this one aspect of this totem's mentality manifests amongst their children. My concern is that the camps themselves are basically gateways to get more gifts. Mm -hmm. That's really the long and short of it. I mean, the books give a paragraph for these camps. There's really not much to them. It doesn't talk about how this camp organizes itself, how it networks its members together, how it interlaces with members within its own tribe and throughout the Garu Nation. It doesn't talk about these. But if it did, I'd be totally on board for what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the big thing. This is why I call this kind of the ultimate compromise approach as far as I'm concerned. If they don't go with what we're going to call the best solution, which we'll come to later, this would be the ultimate approach of how I would want W5 to approach camps. Keep them like this avenue of having a means to gifts, but also using that to expand on the lore 
in ways that aren't just 90s edginess and give players like a real deep understanding of what it is that the tribe represents and kind of like having consultants on like the different types of if we're doing black theories the different types of queer feminism that's out there marxist feminism all the different schools of thought that can exist within a single philosophy i like this because it turns into an accessible means of improving oneself mm-hmm. without having to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on an academic education like we had to <laughs> in order to understand a lot of this stuff. So this is the better approach of the two routes that White Wolf has already treaded with this. That's why we're like, for the most part, Bonar camps, spot on. But then we get into the other one, uh, the other philosophy that which is taken, which was the geographic approach, which needs some work with how White Wolf originally approached it. But if they change it in just enough way, I hate to phrase it like this, but definitely could be seen as a very profitable way of Paradox Interactive to handle camps in W5. The geographic approach, as I mentioned before, is taking the tribe, placing it within a time and a place, and realizing how the philosophy manifests within that time in that place. And this then, once again, still trains the mind on the idea that these ideas evolve and change. One of the things I really kind of hate about a lot of outsider perspective on Werewolf the Apocalypse is this idea that werewolf mentality is static. (laughs) Like, people talk about how it's like, oh, it's super traditional. Like... There's super traditional tribes, but even those super traditional tribes, when you read through the lore, have gone through evolutions and Mm -hmm. changes in thoughts and processes. They aren't like vampires, who it literally is the single one person who has gone through ages of this. No, you have a group of people that are living relatively short lifespans because they're in a literal war, Mm -hmm. moving throughout time, and moving throughout regions. So... This then also turns into an excellent possibility if they adopt, please adopt, the notion that tribes are not isolated to a single location. But are global. But are global in and of themselves. And then start getting into, well, what does a Black Fury look like in rural China? What What does a Geta Fenris look like in New Zealand? What does a Geta Fenris look like in Appalachia? Mm-hmm. And sort of looking at those broad concepts through a narrow focus. How is Southern American militarism different from New Zealand Maori-influenced militarism? Mm-hmm. And this can be an excellent way for them to expand and appeal to a much more global market. I would adore reading a Rage Across the Amazon book that, frankly, isn't garbage. Yeah. Rage Across the Amazon is garbage. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to read about glasswalkers that aren't just hackers and corporate wolves. I would love to see Kuchu Okundu manifest as a camp. They make perfect sense as a red talent camp. Mm-hmm. 
The big, big drawback I see with this is, like I said, this is potentially a more profitable means of White Wolf to resolve this issue. And that means then that that coordinates and cuts off a lot and a lot and a lot of lore from people who just want to play the game and don't want to be book collectors for it. Mm -hmm. Which, frankly, I highly encourage. I sincerely do. If this is your passion like it is with us, reading into it, wonderful. But if it's not your passion, you shouldn't feel pressured to have to read Rage Across Russia in order to feel like you can adequately play a Russian werewolf if you are already familiar with Russian culture. You can already do that with your own independent research. Just make sure it's good research. <laughs> the other problem is that it can also produce a lot of ethno-stereotypes coming out of it. Yes. And so, yeah, I kind of frown on it in that regard. It's one of those things where you hope and pray that they get a writer that is familiar with it, but then you still have the concept of, cool, so they got somebody from China who really knows Chinese provenances to write Rage Across China, but still doesn't necessarily understand what anarchism is and so can't really represent the Bonars in the best light mm -hmm. or doesn't really understand divine rights and so they can't represent the silver fangs in the best light. It has the problem of it inevitably it calls for or a paradox to have a lot of cooks within that kitchen. Mm -hmm. And it also, while it does help to sort of conceptualize how the camp networks because it's very regional, it does sort of produce a, all right, if I want to play an Appalachian get of Fenris, do I have to be this get of Fen Like, it does feel a little bit constraining where either you're part of the family or you're not. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it could be a very cool resource to be like, all right, Someone from Brazil is writing about glasswalkers in Brazil. Cool. This is interesting. But do I think Paradox would do that? And especially do I think they'd do it well? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's one of those things where part of the reason we brought these up is because White Wolf has already tried this with both of these sections. And that's part of the reason why camps are such a problem. Because half the camps were approached with a philosophical method. And then the other half were approached with a geographical method. Mm -hmm. And so camps in and of themselves, when you try to describe what they are to people, you get some contradictory answers. And then you also get pro what I like to call the Get a Fenris problem. Yes, onto our dishonorable mention. The Get a Fenris camps are mostly terrible. Mm -hmm. They kind of have the problem that, you know, we talked about in our Totem Ban episode, where Unicorn's ban, really good, but everyone else seems to be crowding in on Unicorn. Well, everyone else in this example are the Geta Fenris camps. Yep. Because most of them are simply colonizing other tribes. tribes, for lack of a better metaphor. A very common question whenever I am dealing with a Geta Fenris player who decides I want to be in a Geta Fenris camp. Okay, which camp is it? Is it Hand of Tear? No. Oh, I'm not letting you play Sword of Heimdall. <laughs> also, which one is it? Oh, it is Loki's smile. Cool. Why aren't you Shadow Lord? And I get blank stares. Mm -hmm. Valkyria Freya, why aren't you Black Fury? Blank stares. Fangs of Gorm, why aren't you Bonar? Blank stares. And we do at least have a constructive suggestion for these examples. The books sort of present them as, 
oh, the Valkyria Freya are Geta Fenris, but they're basically Black Furies, so they'd be super cool friends, right? Uh, mm. no. If you were super cool friends, you'd have signed on with Pegasus. Instead, you signed on with Fenris, who's aggressive and domineering and believes in might makes right. And if you're stronger, you're the better one. And so all of these examples work well if you view them as antagonistic to their copycat tribe. Mm -hmm. If the Fangs of Gorm are going about and militarizing the downtrodden, instead of the Bonars who try and uplift them and protect them and make sure their needs are met, the Fangs of Gorm are out there giving them guns. And training them in militia-style tactics so that they can fight the worm. But they're militarizing these people. Mm -hmm. 100%. The Bonars are going to look at them and they're going to say, you're taking away these people's autonomy. You're forcing them to become soldiers in the war you're supposed to be fighting. You are the bad guy. And they're going to fight. And based on the book, remember what happened in the American Revolution? The Bonars kicked their ass. So, uh, that's just my bias. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they would not be friends. And I kind of really super duper duper hate the fact that the book tries to present them that way. Mm -hmm. That Loki's smile is, they're essentially a Shadow Lord. There's really no difference between the book's description and a freaking Shadow Lord. And so what would a Geta Fenris do if you had the Shadow Lord mentality, well, you'd be a straight up, I can kick your ass, and that's why I'm in charge. Loki's smile is basically trying to be Loki, because again, Norse mythology and we can't fucking escape this shit. So no, instead, put an actual Fenrir spin on it. Be like, no, we're the ones who are supposed to be in charge because we're the best fighters and this is a war, in case you haven't noticed. And so I'm not going to operate as a Shadow Lord. If that were the case... I'd have signed on with Grandfather Thunder and would ascribe to those beliefs. But instead, I signed on with Fenrir and ascribed to those beliefs. But I think I should be in charge, and I'm going to do it a Fenris way. Valkyria Freya, guess what? No, they're not for uplifting women. They are for uplifting strong women. I.e. themselves. Exactly. A woman who goes into the Gitta Fenris is going to view... Other Black Furies as wasting their time with underprivileged, weak people who cannot rise up themselves. And a Valkyria Freya will say, I rose up. That is why I am strong. That is why I belong at equal footing with the men next to me. Because I fucking rose up. Mm -hmm. So all of these interpretations at least feel more valid than what the book presents. Mm -hmm. Because it's, okay, I can understand how a Geta Fenris would view it this way. And it also makes for better roleplay. Because a Valkyria Freya, who really is being played by a player who wants to be Black Fury, but wants to avoid the, the cultural baggage that comes from being a Black Fury, eh, that's no fun. But if I'm playing a Black Fury and someone's playing a Valkyria Freya... Well, there's like a difference of interpretation and viewpoint here that can spawn drama and conflict. Exactly. Great. And this isn't about putting the Gitta Fenris down in this particular case. They just happen to be the prime example of what goes wrong when you focus on geography. Instead of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But now that we've stated those, we've stated what works with the philosophical approach. We've stated what goes wrong with the philosophical approach. We've stated what works with the geographical approach, or at least what could work. <laughs> and how White Wolf has gone wrong with the geographical approach in the past. So, here comes the best solution, which, 
Ryan, this is your idea, so you may state it. Pan-Garu camps. The only example I can think of within the books are the Lazarites, the Garu-born liberation front, essentially. And while they're not specifically a camp, they're not defined as one, they don't get any special gifts, it makes sense because anyone of any breed, auspice, or tribe can look at the Garu nation and go, you know what, I don't like this aspect of it, and unify in that regard. Doesn't matter what your tribe is, it a little bit matters what your auspice is, but not really. Anyone can look at this and go, uh, these people are being held down. They make up the majority of our population. Maybe we should uplift and support them Mm -hmm. and work towards that. And so I would advocate for Pan-Garu Nation camps. And an easy way to sort of expand on this is to do exactly what the Lazarites do, which is look at something within the litany and try and reinterpret it in a different light. Exactly. The big thing with going with Pan-Tribal Camps as the fix for W5 is, once again, it opens it up to everyone. It doesn't constrain you down to, like, being the only member of your camp within a thousand-mile radius. Right. But it also doesn't rely on cultural stereotyping because the cultural stereotype is the litany. Mm -hmm. Pan-tribal camps are about looking at what is going on specifically with Guru society. And with this, you can start looking at lore and being like, hey, that breeding aspect that I don't like about the Garu, I've never really cared for that. And I want to have a campaign that rails against it. Cool. Here's a camp of a whole bunch of other Garu that agree with you. Mm, I don't really care for or how the guru treats young people because very much it is you are in a war. Young people will get shoveled off into the military much the same way in Garu Nation as they do in real life. Mm-hmm. And so you are of the mindset that young guru up until Cleos need to be better protected from the horrors of the world so that they can better learn and come to understand themselves. Kin folks need to be uplifted. Mm-hmm. These are very unique aspects within the lore that then you can tackle using pan-tribal camps within your story. And you can have this be conflicts. Once again, this brings in that villain concept. There's going to be people that resist against you on this. There's going to be fights going on back and forth. And it doesn't just split the Garu into the young progressive Garu fighting against the old regime. That's vampire. Get your head out of vampire. (laughs) It's about taking what is right there, right now, right in front of you and dealing with it. It also gives another layer of interconnectivity in larger LARP games where you've got your pack, that's your solid base, you've got your tribe, another solid base, and now you have this camp that's going to bring in people from other packs, from other tribes, who still feel the same way as you, kind of like how uh, the sects worked in Vampire the Requiem with things like the Lankia Sanctum and things like that, mm-hmm. where you now have got this another layer of relationships to build upon and work with to create drama and story. Cool stuff. So, yeah, 
that's sort of my suggestion for, for mm-hmm. camps. And honestly, like I said, right now, camps are an optional rule. So it wouldn't be that hard to implement this as a thing. Uh, you can even have tribal camps still be a thing with the pan-tribal camps alongside it. Just put more of an emphasis in your freaking book paradox about pan-tribal camps being more important and then having tribal camps be something that you can now take your time on and do adequate research into mm-hmm. before you introduce. Yep. All right. So, that said, I think we covered just about everything we wanted to cover. I think we did. All right. So, next time we are going to talk about... What is it we are going to talk about? Right. Something that you guys very frequently ask us to talk about, which is incorporating other splats. <laughs> How do I incorporate this vampire into my game? Okay. We got thoughts on that. Yeah, we do. You may not like those answers. <laughs> but We're we got constructive. <laughs> but we got thoughts. So, we'll see you next time. Later. break room. Like they mentioned, camps are an excellent way to explore the more villainous aspects of werewolf society. You are tired, we know, of werewolves boasting on and on and on about how righteous and how wonderful their cause is, but they still have those villainous, villainous camps. Man-eaters, Swords of Heimdall. What could be better for us than to encourage these camps and their ideals with our products, particularly with our run of social media networks? Let's make sure that they only get the information that they want to get. Have a good day!